the grotto studies uh, in Italy, I spent a disproportionate amount of my time in my classes teaching uh, homiletics. <clears throat> and this year, if uh, all goes as planned in August, we will return to the grotto studies in person, and we are very excited about that. My assignment is to be teaching homiletics from the Gospel of Luke, and I am very much looking forward to that. And the lesson this morning is uh, somewhat uh, a homiletics lesson, or at least homiletics instruction, but homiletics has to do with the, the putting together of a sermon, okay? So, uh, and how you, how you organize and structure a lesson, how you uh, get, get that all put together, but I'm calling your attention primarily to how you get started when you're talking with someone about the gospel, how you get started. This morning, as, as Curtis was leading us in our prayer together, as we were petitioning the throne of God for blessings, even as we were offering praise and honor and glory to God, we were asking God together this morning to give us open doors of opportunity to speak with wisdom and love and intelligence to people around us about the gospel. And uh, as we're thinking about that this morning, I'm calling attention to how you get started in, in those conversations with, with folks and how you tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one gospel. And yet, I, I want you to be impressed with the fact that in the in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which was volume two of Luke's writings, in, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles are, are the acts of God's people in the early church and carrying the gospel to the world. There are some major sermons recorded there, beginning in Acts chapter two with the sermon of Peter that is recorded there. But I want you to note very quickly, we're going to go through and note just a few of these, how they began, and we're working our way to chapter 17 that Troy read to us in our scripture reading this morning, Paul's sermon on the Areopagus, on Mars Hill, as he was talking to the Athenian wise men, the philosophers, those who fancied themselves as being the thinkers of the day. And I want you to notice especially that all of these are sermons, and all of these are teaching the gospel, but not a single one of these start in the same way. They don't start in the same way. The Apostle Peter in Acts, the second chapter, probably one of the sermons that we are most familiar with in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the apostles there was the sound like as of a rushing mighty wind and the cloven tongues like as of fire that sat upon the heads of the apostles. And they began to speak in languages that they had not studied. The people marveled. They were amazed. Every man was hearing in his own language what was going on. And they did not know what is the meaning of all of this. And Peter stood up and preached to them on that day. Now, I want you to especially focus on this. Peter now has an audience for the very first time. He has an audience of thousands of Jews, and he has the opportunity to tell them something about Jesus, about faith. In Jesus. These are people 
These are people who believe in God. These are people who know exactly who Moses is. Uh, they, They are well familiar with the Psalms, the law, the prophets, they, they know all of that, but this Jesus, well, those from Jerusalem, they knew a little bit about Jesus. <clears throat> he, had, uh, he had really caused a stir in their town. And, and not too many days earlier, they had been to the point almost of a riot there, demanding of Pilate that he be crucified, and he was. Now this is all coming to its climactic end. Peter stands up on that day. And I'm saying to you that as he began with this audience to tell them about Jesus, he found some common ground on which to stand. What, What was it? Well, with this audience of thousands of Jews, he quoted from a Hebrew prophet. And and the first thing he says is, hey, folks, uh, they're not drunk like you may be thinking. Like some of you have said, it's only the third hour of the day, 9 o'clock in the morning. They're they're not drunk. That's not what's going on here. He said, this is that which was uttered or spoken through the prophet Joel. Now, notice that he doesn't stop and say, Now, Joel was an ancient Hebrew prophet. He lived a long time ago. The Hebrew people were the... Why is he not explaining all of that? Because he's talking to the Hebrew people. He's talking to people. There's no need to explain all of that. He's jumping right to where they are. They believe in God. They know who the prophets are. They are well familiar with this prophecy of Joel. He jumps onto common ground immediately with them. This is their common ground. And he grabs their attention and he says, this is exactly what your prophet said. This is what your prophet wrote. This is what your prophet was talking about. And then. He quotes as he is continuing to talk about this Jesus that had been among them. They had killed him. And he's claiming that God raised him from the dead. And he's reminding them that David's tomb is there, full of dead bones, dead men's bones. And and the tomb of Christ is empty. They're well familiar with the Psalms. He didn't have to say, let let me tell you who David is now. David was a man of God. He lived lived even before the prophet Joel. He lived a long time ago. He was one of the kings. He didn't have to tell them that. They they knew. They knew exactly who was talking. They knew the scripture. He's standing on common ground with them. He's using their own material. He's using their own understanding. He's using their own words to bring them to something that they do not yet understand, but he's going to help them understand. That's his point. And then in verse 29 of Acts chapter 2, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch, brothers, what's he doing? He's identifying with them. Well, in in what way? Peter was a Jew. He he is among Jews. And and I'm saying he he is showing them every consideration. 
I, I want you to note, if nothing else, I want you to note this. Peter began with them. Peter began where they were. He began where they were. They were wondering about the noise they heard, about the tongues of fire, about the, all, all these men speaking in these different languages. The, these people were already believers in God. They were already knowledgeable of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Peter began where they were. You remember in Acts chapter 8 when Philip joins himself to the chariot of the African man? He, he found common ground with the Ethiopian eunuch. And he taught him the good news about Jesus. Now, who is this man? This is a man who had been to Jerusalem to worship. He was on his way back home. He is, he is the treasurer of the queen. He's an important official. He is in a chariot. He has servants with him. He has stewards with him. How do you know? He commanded the chariot to stop. If you're driving your own chariot, you don't have to command it to stop. You can just stop it. But he wasn't driving his own chariot. Somebody was driving that chariot for him. And I suspect he had an entire entourage with him. And he invited Philip to come into the chariot and sit with him. Oh, notice that he was sitting down. He was riding in the chariot. And I want you to know that on this occasion, Philip found him. They're, they're in a desert. Philip found him. Here, here is an African man in the desert, in a chariot, and Philip finds him, and he approaches him. It's not like, it's not like this, this official from the queen's court in Ethiopia saw this man walking along in the desert, and he said to the driver, you know, that man may be tired and thirsty. Let's, let's offer him a lift here. Maybe his Uber left him somewhere. I don't know. That's not what happened. Philip, by direction of the Holy Spirit, he approached the man. And wouldn't you know it? There was immediately an obvious point of commonality. Philip found the common ground. Subito. Immediately he found it. What was it? the word of God. This man was a proselyte, a believer in God. He had with him a copy of at least some portion of the writings of Isaiah, the prophet. That, that doesn't sound like a big deal to you. You take your Bible everywhere you go. I, I'm just saying to you, the Hebrew people didn't generally go around town to their coffee breaks carrying 30 or 40 scrolls with them. It didn't happen. This is something very unique, something very unusual. And he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip sees immediately the common ground, the opportunity. He said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, no, how can I accept some man? Show me. 
He invited Philip to come up. I want you to look at verse 35. It's very important in Acts chapter 8. One of the most important verses there. It says, and then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What scripture did he begin with? He began right where he was. He began right where he was in the prophet Isaiah. Then you, you come to Acts chapter 10. The apostle Peter, he, he's in this awkward situation because at Caesarea there was Cornelius. He's a Gentile. Probably Cornelio, because he's probably Italian. He's a centurion of the Italian band, of the Italian cohort. He's one who feared God. Do you get that? Here's a Gentile, probably an Italian, a devout man. He feared God. Listen, it's not just that this non-Jew is a God-believer and a God-fearer. Notice immediately what it says. He feared God, I'm in verse 2 of Acts 10, with all his household. He didn't just fear God a little bit. He was convicted. And everybody in his household had been taught about God. And he gave alms generously to the people. And he prayed continually with God. Drop down to verse 22. When the men come from Caesarea to Joppa to find Peter, Peter went down to the men, verse 21, and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. Look back at verse 2. What's one of the first things the Holy Spirit tells us about Cornelius? Is he a believer in God? He is. Does he fear God? Does he have respect for God? He does. What is it that the servants tell Peter as soon as they get there? They say, Cornelius, who is a centurion, he's a Roman soldier, officer. He is an upright and God-fearing man, and he's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. He was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house. Well, now this is awkward, isn't it? Yeah, you remember those three visions Peter had on the rooftop while he's waiting for this? With all those unclean animals and God saying, eat. And Peter saying, oh, Lord, not me. No, thanks. We don't do bacon at our house. And the Lord gives him the vision. He says, eat. And Peter's saying, I've never touched it. 
And the third time, the Lord gives him the vision, and he says, eat. And Peter said, Lord, in all of my life, listen to this, in all of my life, I have never defiled myself like that. And God said, don't you dare call unclean what I have cleansed. And, and while Peter's trying to figure out what this means, these people show up. And, and they tell him about Cornelius, who is a Gentile, and they say, hey, he wants you to come to his, get this, house. Ever been in a Gentile house? I dare say Peter never had. Never. And he goes. What's the first thing he says? It gets to the house. Cornelius shows him tremendous respect, even too much. Peter said, that's the kind of respect that belongs to God, not me. I'm a man. Get out. And then Peter said to him, verse 28, look, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. I'm not, <laughs> by Jewish standards, I'm not supposed to be here. What does he say? How unlawful this is. Peter is saying to him, there is nothing about this that feels right to me, except one thing. God told him to go. So I, I, I'm saying to you, Pete, Peter's the one who on the day of Pentecost stood up and said, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ for the remission of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because the promise is to you. You remember he's talking to Jews on Pentecost. And to your children, those little Jews who are going to grow up and be big Jews. And to those that are far off, those other people. Peter said that. How many Gentiles has he preached to? Zero. What did he say on Pentecost? He said the gospel is for everybody, even the Gentiles. He said it on Pentecost. What had he done? He had done nothing about it. I'm telling you, this conversion sermon was important to Luke as he's writing it, and to Theophilus, who's receiving it. They're Gentiles. This is music to their ears. Because the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Luke, is explaining to them how it is that the gospel is being preached to Gentiles. Peter needed a push to get there. He, he preached the truth about the Gentiles, but his practice was only the Jews. I mean, he talked a good game. He said the right words. He took the right position. You can hold positions all day long without doing anything. And, and now he's had the push. He's there. And, and here's what he finds out. He finds common ground. What does he find? Look in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who, underline this, fears 
him and, underlying this, does what is right. Okay, three times, what has the Holy Spirit told us? Look in verse 2. That Cornelius is a man who feared God. What does he tell us in verse 22? That the servants, when they came to Peter, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. The third time God's going to tell us through the mouth of Peter, Peter says, I get it now, in every nation, no partiality, anyone who fears God. What's the common ground? Peter has found someone who fears God and wants to do what is right. That's the common ground, and that's exactly where he starts. And that is so important. And so we come to the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. Now, you probably think, since this is the major point of my lesson, that this is going to be really long. Probably. But anyway, this is important. If you ever, if you ever teach homiletics, you, you remember this point. Okay, so finding common ground. The Apostle Paul comes to the city of Athens. Do you remember in Acts 17 where he's been? He went to Thessalonica at first. And, uh, you know, he, pre- he went to the synagogue, to the Jews, and he preached there. And, and <laughs> well, let's just say that some of the Jews believed. A great many of devout Greeks believed. But the Jews, who were jealous, formed a mob. They created an uproar. They, they kicked him out of the city. So they come to Berea, and it was a little better there. But those pesky unbelievers showed up there causing trouble. They had to run away from Berea. So Paul comes to Athens. And now suddenly, it's not about him going to the He went to the synagogue. But Luke doesn't tell us anything about what happened at the synagogue with the Jews. Now Luke is telling us what's happening with the Gentiles. Because... The text says, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And in verse 16, as he saw the city was full of idols, he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, the devout people, and in the marketplace every day with some of those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And so they took hold of him. They brought him to the Areopagus. And and they gave him him a platform. They they gave him a stage. They gave him a hearing. These are Greek people. He's in Athens. Wow. And he, he is in the citadel of ancient wisdom and sophistry. I mean, we're talking the likes of, you know, Socrates and Plato and the the big thinkers, the Greek thinkers. He's among the Greek people. And and they are saying to him, all of the people of this city who see themselves as being the intellectuals, those who are important, they say, okay, we, we will give you a hearing. They wanted to know what he had to say. Now, verse 21 tells us, because all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they would spend their time in nothing else except telling or hearing something new. You see, 
they did not have 24-7 cable news to watch. So since they couldn't watch cable TV all day long about the news that was full of information that's not really information, or we don't know if it's information or not, but it, it, they, they went to the public square and to the Areopagus. And they exchanged ideas and thoughts there. Paul gets a hearing there. Now, I, I want to tell you something about Paul when he got there. You remember what Paul says when he's writing, I, I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when he said, I, I became all things to all men so that I by all means might, might save some. Okay. Paul has a hearing now. These people are not Jews. I, I will tell you, it hasn't worked out real well with Paul and the Jews anyway. These people are not Jews. But it's not just that they're not Jews. It means that they were not born in a culture that just naturally, even through osmosis, environmentally, culturally, they didn't learn about God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't learn about the God who created the heavens and things. They didn't learn about that God. These are pagan people. They are not Jews. And Paul's got to find some common ground so he can talk to them. And I, I want to suggest to you something. Do you know what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when Peter began to speak? He began where they were. These were Jews who believed in the law and the prophets. He started right where they were with their prophets. In Acts chapter 8, when Philip joins himself to the chariot of the African man, what is he, where does he begin? Right where he was. He was reading from the prophet Isaiah. He just started right there where he was. And in Acts chapter 10, when Peter comes and he finds these people who fear God, they, they're believers in God, they fear God, they want to do what is right. Where does he start? He starts right there where they are. Believers in God wanting to do what is right, let me tell you, what is right. Where's Paul going to start? Right where they are. So Paul begins this sermon right where they are. Did you notice that he didn't quote from the prophet Joel? There's a reason for that. There's no need to quote Scripture yet. They don't know what Scripture is. And, and I mean, even after you quote it, what are you going to tell them? Well, Joel said that. Well, who's Joel? Well, he's a prophet. Well, what's a prophet? Well, well a prophet is the one who is the mouthpiece or the spokesman for God. You know, it means to bubble up. It's the one who's so full of the Word of God, it just kind of bubbles up. Well, which God? Well, there's only one God. What? Paul didn't start off quoting Scripture to them. He, he didn't start off by saying, God said. He didn't start there. He said, you know, I've been here for several days. I've seen your city. And I want to tell you, I, I, have, I have come to understand you are... <laughs> In the first century Greco-Roman world, you are very religious people. I don't know if, you said, if there was a twinge of 
sarcasm in his heart when he said it or not, but he's saying something that's true. You're a very religious people. Scholars have estimated because of excavation, uh, archaeology, uh, uh, as it has discovered that the life and culture of the first century, they, they've estimated probably there were in excess of 30,000 altars in Athens in the first century, in excess of 30,000 altars to deities in the first century. Paul said, I couldn't help but see you're very religious. Guess what? Paul's religious too. And not just a little bit. He is very, he's a zealot. He found common ground. And then he does something else. He's not quoting scripture. They don't know any scripture. The scripture came from God. They don't know who God is yet. He's finding common ground. They're religious people. They're, they're gathering constantly to exchange ideas and thoughts. They're looking for truth. So what does Paul do? He quotes Epimenides from the 6th century and Eratus from the 3rd century. Well, they didn't write the Bible. No, they didn't. These were people, men, that all of those who were gathered there, number one, they all knew them. Guess what? Paul knew them too. Epimenides was a hero of the city of Athens. Why? Because in the 6th century, in the city of Athens, I'm talking 6th century B.C., it was a great plague. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were dying. And, and they couldn't stop the plague. And someone told them that there was this philosopher, this poet, this thinker on the, on the Isle of Crete. If they would get him and bring him there, he would know what to do. And they went to Crete and they found Epimenides. And they brought him there. And he told them, look, you take a thousand lambs. Take them to the Areopagus turn them loose, let them roam the city. Now, mind you, there are altars and deities everywhere in the city of Athens. And he said, everywhere one of those lambs lie down, build an altar, and worship the deity of that place. If there's not a deity in that place, what did they put on the altar? Worship anyway. And what did they put on the altar? To the unknown God. And in time, the plague was over. Epimenides was regarded as the, the great hero of the city, this man from Crete. Wow. Paul quotes someone that they knew very well. How did he know about him? And then he quotes Eratus. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being therefore then God's offspring. Now, Eratus wasn't talking about Jehovah God. He didn't know Jehovah God. But Paul is ascribing the words of the men 
that they respect, that they know, that they would honor. He's finding common ground, and he's starting right there so that he can bring them to an understanding. This city is full of temples and shrines and these houses of worship to these deities, but I'm telling you, the true God of heaven, he doesn't live in a house like this. And he used that, the common ground that he established with them. It was your hero. It was your altar. It was your inscription on that altar. And you yourself said, you don't know who this God is. That was the common ground. And Paul is saying, I know who he is. Let me tell you. And that's how he started. So, tremendous introduction no? to his sermon. I don't want to say this to you. Paul did not start his, you remember the Holy Spirit's already told us that Paul's spirit's already provoked. He's walking around a city. He he beheld that it's full of idols. And he says his spirit was provoked within him. It, It angered him. His passions were aroused at the ignorance of these people and the paganism and the, and the offense to the God of heaven for all of this false work that Paul did not start the sermon by saying, you bunch of dirty, ignorant, you, you, you idol-worshiping, heathenistic pagans. What, what, what do you think? He didn't start a sermon that way. And I will remind you this morning, folks, we, we need to be careful how we begin conversations with folks who don't know God. You're not going to insult them into the kingdom. And neither am I. And that's not the pattern of the New Testament. God's not there to tickle their egos. But our our goal is to be effective. We're we're looking for a door that will be open to us so that we can go in and, and be effective. Three important truths here. Number one, mankind is inherently religious, and so they were. And the most enthusiastic atheist is still pursuing truth. And let me tell you, there's a reason why they were gathering in the Areopagus every day, because they wanted to know what's right. They wanted to be in on the latest. They they were searching for something. Paul said, I've got what you're looking for. And as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, idolatry exists after all because truth has been suppressed. Paul made every effort to know them and to know their city, and he found a natural point of commonality with them. You are very religious, so am I. You have this altar. It is, this is a city about your hero and your poets and your altar and your inscription, and I want to talk to you about that. They were standing together. The fact that the city is full of idols, it, it testifies to three things, the insufficiency of human wisdom, the spiritual hunger of the human heart, and the necessity of divine revelation. And so this week, as we're praying, as we are praying, as we already have this morning in our opening prayer together, we are praying for God to give us opportunities to Take the message of Christ to our community, to this world, to our friends, our families, our neighbors. A lot of the people we meet this week are never going to just 
come driving up and, and walking in looking for the gospel. So we're going to have to take it there to them. Let's pray for two things. Number one, let, let's pray for open doors this week to talk with unbelievers about Jesus. And let's pray for wisdom. When the door is open to us, that we can understand who they are and where they are. And, and let's speak the truth to them with love and, and with wisdom and with intelligence. Let's speak to those who do not know God. And let's be sure that our ultimate aim in all of this is to bring them to an understanding of truth. The truth of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The sermon was a little longer this morning. You've been great listeners. Thank you very much. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, what a wonderful opportunity for you to come in obedience to the gospel. If you're a child of God who needs to come home, won't you come right now while we stand together and sing? Jesus, the loving shepherd, calleth thee now to come into the fold.